welcome to another episode of the Help Podcast. Uh, today we have the special opportunity to be recording from beautiful, sunny Las Vegas, Nevada, home of SHM 2017. And we're going to be talking today about the research and innovation poster session last night at the meeting. Uh, I'm James Knight. I'm our uh, Division Director of Medical Informatics. Uh, and joining me today uh, is... Vijay Dugarala. I'm one of the hospitalists. I've been here now for four years. Unfortunately, Beth Liston, our hospitalist uh, lead on this as well, isn't joining us. We have a guest lecturer. Hi, I am Eric Nolan, uh, getting to be a less recent addition to the group, started in August or so, and uh, excited to, to be my first podcast. Thanks, Eric, for joining us today. Um, we are uh, sitting here in front of a computer, and we've taken pictures of posters that we liked last night, and uh, we're just going to uh, take a few minutes and shoot the breeze about them and uh, talk about things that uh, that we thought were, were interesting. Um, shall we go ahead and start with this one? Looks like uh, a great one. <laughs> so uh, I've, I've pulled up uh, a poster from uh, Ohio State's own uh, Chirag R. Patel and others. I'll give a shout-out to uh, Dan Diaz and uh, Sharon Santoso-Clark, as well as Dustin Chase and um, uh, Hillary. How do you say Hillary's last name? Sasso Schley? Not sure. Sorry, Hillary. And uh, what they've done is uh, is they implemented a process for triage uh, that sent uh, web queries out to figure out uh, who was on call uh, for the day and pull in uh, phone numbers and pagers for them uh, uh, from the web and um, sort of populate a triage spreadsheet to make that whole process easier to track encounters and uh, to get a hold of people. And it's uh, really, it's pretty slick. Made my life much easier. It also pre-populated their cell phone numbers. Or was that just at the bottom from previously? I think it pulls that data in from Amion, which is our scheduling software. But, you know, any uh, any group that has that data is somewhere that it could be pulled uh, from the web would be able to uh, set up a process like that. Um, and uh, I think Dan Diaz did a lot of the uh, actual uh, programming of the spreadsheet, and uh, uh, he's not here with us today. But uh, I don't know how many hours total he has in it, but I don't think it took him too, too long. Definitely with the size of our group, something like this, to make it that much easier to, to find everybody when you're the one triaging or, or what have you is, is, is really helpful and uh, uh, nice that Dan was able to code this. Any, so, oh. any comments on the nitty-gritty of the poster itself? or uh... so, the, so let's start with, if you're listening to this and you're actually here in sunny Las Vegas with us, it's uh, poster number 237. It's still uh, hanging out there, so make sure to give it a look. Uh, I will say I am... Biased. I love the colors associated with this poster. Nice uh, scarlet and, and white, no gray. Mm. There's a lot of imagery all located in the center of the poster, so just the view in and of itself draws my eyes to the, to the pictures. I learn a lot more from just looking at images than I do from reading extensively. Um, um, I will say that Dr. Patel, the presenter himself, he was able to break it down for us uh, much more efficiently. And just give us a couple of highlights, just like James did, which is this is a, a triaging apparatus or process which actually pulls in information. And all that imaging that was in the middle of the poster is basically what that triage doctor is able to see. So you're getting a viewpoint of what the triage doctor is seeing. So that made it a lot easier. And it looks like there's about 20-plus service lines, so 20-plus names that that person had to know as well. And that's why the imaging looks so busy. Yeah, I, I think the the key there really is just the uh, the 
the quick access to information and, and making it so you don't have to go to the three different places that information lives when you're, when you're doing triage. All right. I think that's all I've got to say about that. Anybody else before we move on to the next one? Let's all right. Keep it rolling. Uh, next up, we have a uh, poster that I took a picture of from uh, Dr. Uh, Heidi Gunderson uh, and others um, at, I cannot tell where that, oh, it looks like at Henry Ford. Um, and um, uh, what she did was um, uh, worked on uh, improving physician uh, communication and, and engagement um, uh, and um, uh, basically was uh, 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 set up a program whereby uh, they uh, – I can't tell if they actually shadowed the new hires or, or what exactly they did, but they actually um, – uh, were uh, giving uh, feedback to the new hires on how they were doing, uh, and it and overall they felt like that was uh, good for uh, engagement scores uh, and uh, also um, uh, good for uh, um, uh, just improving uh, uh, sort of the you know cohesiveness of the group. So um, you know I know we have uh, a, a, a process for our onboarding, and VJ, you're more connected to that, aren't you? Do you want to say a few words about what we do? So um, we do something very similar, and it's a direct observational process. Um, I've been doing it now for four years with our new hires, where um, our new hires actually observe us for two days, get to ask questions, etc. And then we follow our new hires on their first day, but we're looking to extend that out to about a week um, of observation as well. We have a very formal feedback that we're supposed to provide to them. And in addition to this observation, you are working as their peer mentor, so you're following up with them three months, six months, a year later. I really enjoyed this poster. Unfortunately, I was unable to speak with its presenter. Um, but they used an informal feedback session, similar to kind of what we did. I wish I would have uh, been able to actually speak with the presenter to ask, do they have a format or even just a tool that they use to what sort of feedback that they want provided and in what format. And then another thing we do is the handoff evaluations too, which might be kind of similar to what they, that they're doing here, I think, as well. So are we, um, we, every time we change service, we will uh, have the on, on, oncoming person uh, give an evaluation of the prior physician's uh, progress notes and handoff um, which uh, then people do get feedback on that eventually. And I think we've found some degree that's helped improve the handoffs for people as well. Uh, can you comment on sort of how helpful that process was or wasn't as you integrated to our uh, group recently? Yeah, of course. You mean for the yeah, the, your, the handoff of progress note? No, I would no. I would oh, you mean of the the, uh, the onboarding? Just the onboarding. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I thought our onboarding process was very smooth. And of course, we we've uh, grown quite a bit. So I think we have, you know we we had to develop this, you know, but. But um, uh, the, the shadowing sessions I had before I started helped me to, even though I'd already worked somewhere else, to kind of know how things were done at, U, at, at OSU and how to make things happen. Um, and then having the peer mentor there in my first day as well, I showed up and all of a sudden realized I didn't have my passwords for Epic. <laughs> and, and all this like, like roadblocks that had come in that just hadn't come up during my shadowing sessions. Anyway, they have someone there just to like, make that, you know, the first couple of days way more smooth. And also to have a designated uh, mentor like for the first little while something to go through through the issues i think is, is something we've that i think is that's a great idea and something that we do onboarding really well you know i think it's something we developed and have a very good system for 
One of the questions that I had for, um, or not really a question, but um, a possible um, discussion point, which I'd like to bring up is now that Henry Ford now has this informal FPPE follow-up for observed new hires, you know, they're having better engagement. Now, the next step I always want to know is what did this do for retention? What is the next step? Mm. You know, you know, new hires are, are happier, they're more engaged, and, and that should lead to better retention. But a year or two down the road, I still want to know with this one implementation, will you have improvement or what other implement or what other um, opportunities would this group like to see to improve their retention? Excellent. Well, let's uh, let the hits keep coming and move on to uh, another poster, unless anybody has anything further on this topic. Oh, I just want to say this poster looks beautiful. Uh, I, I like the visuals again, lots of pictures. I, I didn't realize, VJ, that, that you were uh, so taken with the critique of the poster <laughs> presentation slash like the the gestalt the the feel that you get like you you it's have, all about design you have an experience when you interact with a poster that that i i don't think i'd really appreciate it until we started this uh, podcast recording so um i'm pretty sure all of us have watched cartoons in the past and you see the aura the signs that little smell that drives me um <laughs> if you can you look at these posters and you get engaged and then with the first visuals you're going to decide did the title get me or does it look pretty and i want to know more Excellent, excellent. Um, now, this this uh, next poster uh, comes from uh, Christiana Care Health System uh, from uh, Doctor uh, Sabaya S U B B I A H, uh, and uh, and uh, basically they were looking at uh, length of stay uh, in their uh, observation units, and um, basically what they what they showed is uh, that if they got all their uh, observation uh, patients into a dedicated area, they were able to bring down observation length of stay uh, by over 20 hours, um, which wow. really is pretty impressive when you think about it. Um, you know, I think this is relevant for everybody in hospital medicine as we've all, uh, I think, felt uh, more observation patients with the new new Medicare rules. And then the hospital system that you're in then has to respond to that by finding a way to help those patients through the system in a quick and efficient way. Uh, and, um, you know, many places have dedicated observation uh, areas, CDUs, um, clinical decision units uh, or uh, areas that try to expedite uh, care for these patients. Um, but uh, if a patient is, is uh, uh, quote, admitted to the hospital, and I'll say admitted in quotes because it really just means that they're getting a bed in the hospital, um, then finding a way to take those patients that are ob status and um, uh, give them uh, uh, quick and efficient care to get them out of the hospital becomes really important. And I think that uh, we found our CDU unit has been really helpful for us uh, in terms of uh, diverting people away from you know the our services so that you know they can get the uh, quick care that they need to get them out of the the ER if appropriate. So hot topic, yeah. hot topic, right? This is wonderful for all of us. Um, looking at one of the charts on the on the poster itself, these actually subset some of this data as well down into the diagnoses that are specific for the length of stay comparison. So looking real closely, they have syncope, dizziness, abdominal pain, which had quite a bit of, um, of improvement there. Dyspnea as well, which had an improvement of itself, about 40%. Low back pain, about 40% improvement there as well. Nausea, vomiting, pneumonia, 
um, GI, gastroenteritis, COPD, um, also had a, a pretty large improvement along with UTI and uh, chest pain. doesn't look like there's that much improvement um, on the chest pain graph, but looks like they got the most bang for their buck coming off of the specific diagnosis of abdominal pain, low back pain, and uh, dyspnea. Yeah, and maybe they just already had um, good good policies and procedures in place on chest pain, or uh, maybe for whatever reason um, they have less less barriers to testing that they needed to get done before people left. You know, sort of regardless of the patient's location. I mean, that's probably a system set up uh, uh, that they've got that that uh, gave them an advantage there. So protocolized, excuse me, protocoling care um, might have helped improve a lot of this as well, and then placing them localizing where those patients are, um, which I know is somewhat difficult um, for most institutions at times. Well, right. I mean, when you're dealing with, uh, you know, full hospitals and capacities and trying to make sure that you're efficiently using your beds, but at the same time, you want to make sure that you're efficiently getting getting patients through your system. Um, and then, you know, do you have dedicated uh, physicians that are that are just taking care of the observation patients you're going to bring in? Are all your hospitalists going to be seeing some observation patients that are in that observation area. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, uh, clearly um, uh, having having this uh, additional uh, uh, in-hospital observation unit um, made a big difference for these patients. A length of stay reduction of 20 hours is, is incredible. It's huge. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that, I mean, so I, I, and I have to think there are other studies like this and they keep showing these kinds of outcomes. It's hard to not justify, it's and, hard to justify not doing this. So, and, and I am quite positive that theirs is not the only institution that yeah. would benefit from yeah. putting their yeah. their observation patients in one isolated area. Yeah. So everybody agrees, next up, we'd like to see this uh, replicated. We need to, I think, it just find something that works for everybody's system and replicate some of this data. That would be wonderful to see. This is a, a one-study, one-site study, which is... Yeah, I'd like to see it replicated at University Hospital myself. <laughs> well, Christianity actually is that. a big academic uh, facility, actually. It's, yeah. it's, um, so, uh, well, I'm at, at Ohio State. Oh, I yeah. see. <laughs> at our University Hospital. <laughs> <laughs> Sign me up. Let's do it. Uh, next up, we have a poster on uh, interdisciplinary rounding at the bedside. Uh, and uh, basically what they were trying to do was see if, if they rounded as an interdisciplinary team, if they could move the needle on their patient satisfaction scores. Um, and um, they really didn't. <laughs> this is really interesting. I'm looking at the data, and there really aren't very much differences in terms of um, patient satisfaction before and after. And I think it's, I think other institutions have found more of a benefit. I know that in my last position, before I came to OSU, we had interdisciplinary rounds. I think we saw big improvements in our HCAP scores, actually. I'm, so I'm surprised a little bit that they didn't see a benefit, because I think like we've heard that the patients really enjoy seeing everybody together. And I, you have thoughts, BJ? Or? So I just wanted to uh, first give a, give a little bit of background information. It looks like it's uh, Dr. Hockman uh, et al. And, they're com- and this poster is from uh, NYU Langen um, Medical Center. Um, great poster, great visuals um, yeah. also, but the image itself, just like you guys are uh, conversing about, the HCAPs really didn't move much yeah. from that standpoint. There's a great article that was published in today's hospice about a month ago, which also talks about something very similar about this interdisciplinary rounding. And it um, got a little bit more into the nitty gritty about why some of the times some of these hospitals we don't see improvement is because this type of interdisciplinary at bedside rounding is just another step trying to move the needle. But they've already had a lot of background sort of interdisciplinary rounding, just not at the bedside previously. 
So for those types of institutions that already had some sort of interdisciplinary rounding, maybe not just at bedside, the needle didn't move as much, versus some of the institutions that didn't have that sort of framework or background previously were able to move the needle much more. So I think it's institution-specific. Um, and I believe one of the authors was um, – actually, I'm not sure. I'll disregard that previous comment. Uh, Eric, any thoughts? I mean, I, when I, you know, I sort of cringe, honestly, you know, mm-hmm. uh, when I when – I, she's got a picture on her poster of, of uh, all these people standing around the patient. Mm-hmm. And just the idea of having to uh, deal with that process of having all these people in the room at the same time um, – but they all have a role to play, and if you streamline your communication and you and you have a process uh, and you go through that, um, it really shouldn't be that daunting. Uh, and and uh, making sure that at least at the point which all those people walk out of the room, uh, you know, the resident, the care manager, they've got an appointment facilitator, they've got the attending, they've got a bedside nurse, a social worker. At the moment at which all those people walk out of the room, they're all on the same page, mm-hmm. and that's pretty valuable for for patient care. And I guess I do have a perspective on this because I've seen it a few times. Like, this kind of approach of having like the whole team in the, in the room with the patient like seems to usually, it started in ICUs where everybody's localized. I think so. I think localization is key to make this practical. Um, and, and I think actually patients do seem to enjoy the process. Like and sometimes we kind of feel like it's sort of artificial to do this because we already are talking, but then we have to do it in front of the patient is the key. I do will say patients, it's, it's probably more powerful for them to remember it, right? Because we, we do, we say a lot of things, but then people's retention is, is not very good. But I think it's more powerful to remember it or at least be, you know, impressed by everybody's communication when you see them together. And also sometimes I think the families enjoy it as well, try to come by for this kind of thing. So I think for for the right setup, when everybody's really localized and you can get, you know, the case manager or social worker, whoever needs to be there, there along with you, it can work. But also it, it does take up time. So th- there's a, there's always challenges. And I think um, a lot of a lot of groups are, are hesitant at first to go to this kind of model. And of course, their their data found that it didn't seem to make much of a difference, actually, as well, which seems to you know bring up more concerns. But I think that this kind of model is in other places has maybe had a little more success, too. So. I will say, um, going back to the image that Dr. Knight James was talking about was, when you look at that picture, we most of us are taking a look at the picture from the physician standpoint. Go back to taking a look at that picture and think of yourself as that patient <laughs> with seven people, <laughs> six people looking down on you. Yeah. I mean, that is a it could be intimidating. Yeah. 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 I mean, when yeah. he said the word daunting, I was thinking to myself, my viewpoint is from that patient right now, yeah. and I have six people staring down at me. And I think like a key probably is not doing this for every patient. If there's somebody you know who won't respond well to it, and you and often we have an idea um, that maybe those people that you'd give a chance, an option of not to, not participating. So yeah, I think you're right. I think some patients will be very much into like and, and actually I know from experience some patients are very intimidated by this and do not enjoy it at all. They have been themselves discussed in front of all these professionals. So so a little bit further in, uh, information is in today's hospitalist in April of uh, this year as well, and it's it basically asks should you be doing bedside rounding. And it goes a little bit more in depth. I'm I'm very happy to see this poster, though, <laughs> as well, showing that HCAP surveys didn't move that much. I really do wonder if they've already had a pretty good system for interdisciplinary rounding, just not at bedside previously. I I suspect that's the case. And as as we know, there's there's uh, more to HCAPs than meets the eye. <laughs> Next topic. Sounds good. Let's keep it moving. Uh, this one, I just I. I just I I I just you could have knocked me over with a feather. So this is uh, from Doctor <laughs> Cast at uh, Northwell Health. 
Um, and uh, the title of the poster is The Successful Development of a Hospital Medicine Trauma Surgery Co-Management Program. And, um, you know, when you talk about scope creep in hospital medicine, uh, you know, taking care of trauma patients is probably the extreme example that, that anybody would think of uh, uh, when, they, when they start to think about areas where they would be uncomfortable from a medical standpoint. And then I read the poster a, a little bit more, and it started to make a lot of sense. I mean, a lot of these trauma patients are, are older patients with multiple medical problems and comorbidities. Uh, they've got diabetes and high blood pressure and maybe some dementia, heart disease, what have you. Uh, they're on high-risk medications that, that need to be carefully managed and kept safe, you know, anticoagulation management uh, around the time of their, their trauma, antiplatelet therapy, because, you know, everybody and their brother's got, got a stent in their, their heart or their legs or somewhere that you got to make sure stays open. Uh, and and uh, just trying to make sure that we help keep these patients uh, safe um, uh, so that the trauma surgeons can focus on the important things like, you know, the trauma. Uh, and so at first I was just, you know, taken aback, and then I kind of thought about it, and I said, man, that sounds like a, kind of a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, uh, I think that with how complex our patients are, um, I, I mean, on all services, I think many surgery colleagues would appreciate our input, and, and I even hear that from people, not you know, from rehab doctors, or whatever, like that, that that they would appreciate our input on lots of their patients. And sometimes we're, I'm a little surprised to hear that, even when when we're, you know, some of these people seem pretty stable. But um, obviously, there's there's a need for this, and it seems like they uh, uh, found found a benefit to it too. I don't know, BJ, can you talk about the the, the poster and such? Or? The title caught me. It scared me. It scared me into attention. <laughs> Trauma surgery and co-management? What? Are we sure about this? Um, no, but I agree with James. The patient population that is uh, coming in with trauma is, you know, over the age of 60, multiple medical conditions as well. So probably these people have ASAs of three, four, um, kind of like ortho co-management, right? You know, these are sick people with a right. lot of medical problems. But I was, um, I was taken aback. And there's this little small bar graph at the bottom of this um, poster, and it talks about what hospitals do really well. The CMI that we are document that they were documenting uh, down in Northwell High. I have to give it out to Dr. Cast here. They've they actually improved the CMI. So when the surgeons were taking care of these patients, you know their CMI was about 1.5. With this co-management trauma, they moved that bar up to 1.8. That is a pretty decent movement of a case mix index. So documentation of correct um, of all the comorbidities, treatment of these comorbidities, improving the patient satisfaction with the HCAP scores. This looks like a win-win possibility. And and I think, you know, this is, like I said, scared initially by the title, but this is, I hope, going to be replicated in other places. Again, Communication, 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 setting up the standard up front with how this is going to work with the surgeons is always key. But these are great metrics. Yeah, I mean, you're going to have to have surgeons that buy in and you're going to have to have hospitalists that that uh, that aren't afraid to, to jump into it. But if you if you uh, if you have uh, a good working relationship um, with your surgeons, uh, you know, it would seem to me that this would be something you could get rolling. And uh, as our previous poster was just talking about length of stay observation units, in addition to decreasing the CMI, they've also decreased the amount of uh, excessive day reduction. So basically, they're reducing it two ways, their length of stay, uh, their O versus E, so their observed versus expected by improving the CMI. Um, and also, they're getting the patients out of the hospital 
um, a little bit quicker. Uh, and I love their next steps that they pointed out, trying to make sure that those quality metrics are met. Are the hospitals helping in terms of the the VTE prophylaxis, the caudies, clapsies? Great poster. Wonderful job. It's pretty as well. <laughs> it's aesthetically pleasing. That's 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 excellent. Um, moving on, next we've got. Uh, I just, I'm not sure if EJ <laughs> even wants to talk about this one. Uh, the the title is, and we won't spend long on this, but the title is preserving the right to vote in sickness and in health, and uh, goes through the processes uh, that uh, uh, Dr. Davila uh, at uh, UCSF uh, went through uh, to uh, try to make sure that uh, their patients that were in the hospital on election day could vote. And I know in our institution as well, they had uh, processes in place to try to help our patients vote. And and uh, and I just I think it's important, and uh, and I'm glad that uh, there's people out there making sure that happens. Definitely, people never choose to be sick, and it's, I'm glad we can help keep you know keep them you know doing their citizenly duty even even when they're hospitalized if they can and they're right. interested. Yeah. I would like to give a shout out to uh, Dr. Liston, who's normally here. Beth, <laughs> that's she, right. She spearheaded this uh, yeah. for us at Ohio State. She actually had a couple of us who were off come in, hand out ballots appropriately for those patients who wanted them. Thank you, Dr. Liston. All right, this one I you know is near and dear to my heart uh, because. It, Many of you may or may not remember my love of donuts, but I also just love food in general. And uh, the title of this poster is The Hangry, Hangry Hospitalist, Prototyping Accessible Nutrition as a Resilience Strategy uh, from Dr. Uh, Anderson at uh, University of Colorado. And, um, you know, I don't think we need to spend too long on this, um, but, you know, uh, uh they basically uh, came up with an intervention to uh, make sure that there was uh, a, a nutrition sta- a nutrition station in the hospital's workroom. And they've got a little picture on the poster, and there's you know fruit and snacks, and um, and uh, the physicians uh, liked that and took advantage of it. It's the little thing sometimes, I think. Well, you know, I was at the session on. Did either of you go to the session on work-life balance yesterday? Did not. No. You know, her her point was sort of that uh, we're post-industrial now, and and we don't go through a um, a schedule where uh, you you know you 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 work for X hours. I mean, we spend X hour number of hours a day on email, and X number of hours a day in EMR, and X number of hours with the patient. But they're no, those aren't serial functions. We're doing all those things at once, intermittently, uh, and. And, you know, I think I see as part of that, you know, nutrition ends up being rolled into that. I mean, uh, you know, some days, sure, you have time to go sit and actually eat lunch and or but some days you really don't. And uh, so having that opportunity to uh, avoid being hangry uh, while you're rounding and, and, and moving patients through the system, I think, is important. Nobody else has anything to say about feeding hospitalists other than we all think it's it's uh, a good idea. Should be required everywhere we go. <laughs> Um, uh, you know, this is, uh, there's a lot going on on this one. A lot of information. Yeah. So basically, um, this is a poster by Camerata, um, and title itself is obese patients with acute bacterial skin and skin structure infections have double the rate of key comorbidities compared to non-obese patients, which impacts antibiotic selection. They're coming out of, uh, Lincolnshire, Illinois. And they are from Melinta Therapeutics. Yeah, so, so I mean, this is this is essentially a. Um, the, the, I mean, I'm assuming this is the drug company that has this poster there, right? Uh, yeah. 
Um, and uh, there are a lot of words on this slide, and they are very small. And um, but their point basically um, was uh, that uh, uh, that you see more comorbidities in obese patients with uh, skin infections. And you know, I mean, I I don't know. Um, how much that necessarily changes your practice, but it it sort of makes sense and fits in the gestalt of what you see on a day to day basis as a working hospitalist in our society uh, with uh, pervasive uh, obesity and associated health effects. Great summary of a lot of a uh, lot of data, a lot of information on this poster, um, but preferably we just like to keep moving. Uh, oh, I love this one so. Uh, the title mm. of this poster, Anti-Motility Use in Patients with uh, C. diff, Potentially Safe, question uh, mark, from uh, Dr. Uh, Kuhn, possibly K- K-U-O-N, uh, there at UCSF. And, um, you know, geez, I don't know, four or five years ago, I was on teaching service with, uh, with the residents, and I had this patient that was um, C. diff positive and on treatment, and, you know, still having diarrhea, and um, the resident dug this paper up that said it was probably safe if the patient was on active treatment to go ahead and give the patient Imodium, and uh, I I was surprised and shocked, and, you know, because that had not been my practice for, you know, for forever, Um, and uh, we went ahead and did it, and nothing bad happened to that patient, and I've done it again since, and nothing bad has happened yet, knock on wood, Um, uh, but uh, I wanted to go ahead and uh, take a picture of this just because that was a little um, uh, clinical uh, tidbit um, that, that I had moved to the back of my mind that this reminded me of when I saw the poster. So This is, I guess, particularly interesting for me because we, we feel like a lot, after you treat somebody, a fair number of people with C. diff are colonized and uninfected. And also, we know that after any kind of gastroenteritis or colitis, some people might have like an IBS-like illness afterwards with diarrhea. And I think a lot of us still might feel sort of hesitant to give them you know, antidiarrheal meds. But I think the paper you mentioned before and this, this poster kind of lends to that probably we, we should be doing more than we are for, for quality of life reasons, for people who need to get you know, dehydrated. Well, look at length of, length of stay and yeah. comorbidities. Yeah. You've got, you, you mentioned dehydration. Look at your, look at how many patients we take care of that actually throw themselves into acute kidney injury from yeah. their C. diff. I mean, we see it all the time. Yep. C. diff is bad. Yeah. And, uh, and so if we can help control that diarrhea, it's not, it's not I mean, quality of life, yes, but I mean, there's also uh, medical implications here for length of stay, dehydration, and, and AKI. Disclaimer, James has seen patients um, recently, not just four to five years ago. Um, he was just giving us an, an, an antidote about the past uh, there. Did I give the impression that the last time I saw patients was four or five years ago? <laughs> no C. diff in four years? Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he hasn't seen C. diff in four years. Last, uh, last visualization we have was four years ago. excellent hand hygiene. <laughs> And uh, and room cleaning policies. So, so I think the the main thing, and I and I was in the same thought process as James. I was fearful of toxic megacolon in these people that have acute C diff infections. Um, and and I'm I still do not give anti motility agents. But after reviewing this, uh, after reviewing this poster, they gave it to about twenty five percent of the patients in the, the first four, fourteen days without any adverse effects there. Um, and like James was talking about, you're avoiding dehydration. A lot of these people have multiple, multiple bowel movements, which we all know about. Um, and if it improves their diarrhea, it decreases their risk of dehydration. And like Eric was saying, I would be much happier. <laughs> the patient satisfaction should be improved with that as well. 
yeah, I think um, I, I'm I, obviously you're, you're you're gonna examine your patient, and you're you're not gonna give it to somebody that's got a concerning abdominal exam. But for sort of your run of run of the mill uh, pooping all day C diff kind of patient, um, I, I think there's there's benefit there. Disclaimer: Antibiotics were started prior to the anti-motility agents. Right, and that's uh, that's the way I've I've seen it done, and that's what I've done clinically as well. Let's keep this rolling. Next up, we have. Uh, a uh, poster titled Pilot of a Low-Resource EHR-Based Tool for Sepsis Monitoring, mm-hmm. Alerts, and Intervention uh, from Dr. Sankey there at uh, Yale New Haven Health. And um, uh, VJ looks really excited about this. So, I, you know, I, 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 I there, there's a lot of words on this slide. Yeah. And <laughs> rather, than, rather than get too far into the nitty-gritty, let's talk about this as a process. Uh, so basically, they set it up so that they would generate a rapid response team, uh, or you know, or ERT or RRT, or there, there's another potential thing they could be called in different institutions. But you know, whatever your institution has to uh, ensure that a patient uh, that could potentially unstable gets extra uh, attention that they need. And basically, they took, um, they sent out. Um, a uh, sepsis alert based on uh, EHR uh, uh, criteria uh, to try to uh, identify these patients and uh, and uh, get them their care uh, quickly. And um, so they use something like the modified early warning sepsis signs alert, the, yeah, yeah, or yeah. the early warning signs, yeah, yeah. To, so that they could get the. Try to reduce time to antibiotic administration. Try to everybody get on the same page, and I think it's been done many times and been shown to uh, help with um, you know in, uh, getting you know treatment earlier, uh, cultures earlier, these kinds of things. And I think maybe less so now after it's been years and years since you know the the uh, set surviving sepsis type type uh, uh, protocols things will come out. But 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 um, still, I think this has been. Uh, it, a lot of systems have found this helpful. So let me rephrase this. So this wasn't the early warning signs. This wasn't the modified early warning signs. So I'm, I'm thinking of a different poster. That's why when you brought this up, I was staring at it closely. Um, they used the SERS criteria then. Right. Basically, yeah. The, so okay. yeah, any four of the following is respiratory rate, temperature, heart rate, white blood cell count, blood pressure, uh, kidney function. Uh, and then they sent – they have a physician that's dedicated to their RRTs, it looks like, and then that physician would get the uh, sepsis alert uh, directly from the EHR and be able to sort of assess and uh, intervene uh, as needed. Uh, and, you know, uh, it doesn't look like they had a huge volume of these. It looks like they had uh, 123 events amongst uh, th- over 15,000 admissions, so uh, sort of tolerable there and uh, with uh, uh, some big potential uh, – gains for the patient so pretty busy poster um i think it'd be interesting to kind of have them go back through this with either q sofa the quick sofa instead of the sirs right um as we're updating for sepsis three um and kind of move forward from there yeah and i'm it looks like this uh it's predated yeah yeah I'm, i think this was probably pre pre sofa um uh, is my guess so I apologize about my confusion about this poster. I took a look at another poster um, during the process as well, and they were sending out RRT information with initial diagnosis for the patients. So um, hospitalists and, oh, yeah, and residents were also getting this information. What they found was by providing a little bit more information, patient name, room number, primary diagnosis, and reason for ERT, there still was no change in outcome or user satisfaction with that sort of um, a page using just kind of a, a low resource there as well. That makes sense, though. I mean, when you think about it, that's uh, 
I don't know. What's the value added there, really? Um, so uh, especially when, when, when we're all joined at the hip to our EHR anyway. I mean, we, we just we live in and out of the EHR all day long. So um, that data is at our fingertips to begin with. All right. Next up. Uh, sorry to hit you guys so hard on the uh, healthcare IT related stuff, but we have <laughs> another poster from UCSF um, from uh, Dr. Van uh, Groningen. Uh, uh, that's uh, V A N, uh, separate word, G R O N I N G E N. And uh, title of the poster is Computerized Orders as a Proxy for Clinical Workload. Um, and this is another poster that just kind of made sense to me. Um, and and uh, basically uh, what she was saying is that you could kind of guess how busy a physician was by how many orders they were putting in. Uh, and, and they correlated that with uh, level of care, uh, ICU step down and gen med, um, and they uh, um, correlated that with uh, severity of illness. And, um, you know, I, it just sort of passes the eyeball test. It, it, it validates what we feel when, when we're working. Absolutely. It, it's, you know, it kind of, it fits what you expect to happen. I guess more complex patients should need more orders, more intervention, more, more kind of everything. Um, it's, it's interesting to see, I, I appreciate that they, you know, track the data and put this out there. Again, it fits what we would think, you know. Yeah, it just seems to make sense, you know. I see you um, twice as many orders as a gen med patient that we see as well. And, and you feel that busyness when you're, when you're working um, as well. But uh, I will say our EMRs, we do utilize some pre-checked orders as well. So if we were able to remove all those. Um, right, right. I, you know, I think where I would like to see this leveraged is to balance workloads amongst a, uh, mm. a team. So, you know, you could you could uh, have an idea of how sick somebody's patients are when you're triaging uh, in real time uh, with a with a report. And uh, I, I think there's a lot of potential application here. I mean, it, it'd be fun to play with. All right. Thanks. Uh, more UCSF. Uh, we've got uh, uh, Dr. Smith, uh, the pharmacist, uh, and the title of the poster is Don't Be Atypical. Rethink quetiapine, which I don't usually say the generic name of that drug, but I will keep the name brand out of it for the purpose of this podcast. Uh, reducing quetiapine for ICU delirium at transitions of care. Anybody want to talk about uh, antipsychotics and delirium? Yeah, no, I and I, I really appreciate they did this. So I think if I get this right, they're talking about trying to when you get someone probably from the ICU that 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 has been very ill and probably delirious, trying to get them off the antipsychotic they don't need it anymore, which is a wonderful idea considering you know it's something I think we tried to do too, you know, but but making it a focus is important. Wonderful idea considering the safety issues that have come out with antipsychotics, and uh, uh, I think the the data there they're showing uh, shows that they. Um, with piling that with the intervention they did, they, they were able to get a lot of people uh, off the seric, off quetiapine, excuse me, uh, when they transitioned them or when they discharged them. So before this, like the people that were started on quetiapine, apparently 22% of them were still on them at discharge. They presumably weren't on it before. And and, after, and then with this, this intervention they did, only 3.7% still are. Considering the safety issues we have and also even, not, even the safety issues, just the side effects, 
um, that we, we that people have from these from from an unnecessary drug. Probably we're seeing these kinds of reductions. Um, I, I I love that that this project that they put this out there and showed that you know like it brings the the brings my the point that we have with an occasional reconciliation of of um, uh, the power we have to help people out. I think so. So I work in the post-acute care setting at times too, along with uh, James, and Eric, and a bunch of our other partners, and we see this extensively. Patients coming out of the ICU on um, antipsychotics or anything else for delirium, and, and a lot of us work to get them off as quick as possible because we have these patients who, right after coming out of the intensive care unit, need to work with therapists, need to work with rehab, um, and their delirium is tolerable but we can reorient them, work with sunny side rooms. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, the push is to try to get a lot of these patients off of any sort of antipsychotic for delirium. Well, there's growing data that antipsychotics for delirium don't actually do anything. And, you know, I'm just as guilty because, I, you know, I get the nursing phone calls and things are, things are crazy and, and, and I see the patient and the patient's distressed and the family's distressed and, you know, delirium is truly awful. Uh, and, uh, so I won't say I, I never do it, but, but, uh, you know, I think making efforts to get those meds off as quickly as possible or to never put them on in the first place is, is a growing trend in hospital medicine. And who knows? I mean, maybe five years from now, we'll look back at this in the same way that people, uh, look back at, at the way we used to give, uh, benzos to the elderly or something. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised. Absolutely. You know, I think I, I, Compared to four years ago, I think there's been a big reduction in ICU usage of antipsychotics, too. Yep. I remember when I was in Agreed. residency, I just people, yeah. this was a very common practice. Any sign of delirium, try to stamp it out. And now I think it, the, the, you know, I think our, uh, we and our colleagues in critical care have really kind of changed our practice quite a bit because of this ongoing, you know, uh, uh, developing a new data on this, this topic. Moving on, I wonder how many more there are. Oh, this one I know is near and near and dear to BJ's heart. So me too, actually. Uh, so Doctor uh, Doctor Hall at UK, and the the title of the poster is "Drawing Blood in the Light of Day to Increase Sleep for Hospitalized Patients." And uh, we 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 did a podcast on uh, on uh, sleep as well. I think with episode two. So uh, that definitely this is a soapbox item for me. So Eric. Yeah. Lead off, bud. So, so I think what we're getting at here is they're trying to t- draw blood during the day as opposed to 2 a.m. or, you know, 4 a.m. or whatever. Is that, is that how I take it right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, looking at it, so, so, uh, which I think is obviously is a wonderful idea. As we know, lack of sleep causes all kinds of problems for our patients. You, you can see it with, with, their, you know, with how tired they are and how troubled they have, they have to, as they're difficultly constrained in their stay, ret- retaining information. Um, also, I think it certainly makes their stay much less pleasant. It's part of why I think a lot of us, you know, not just uh, within our group and elsewhere, try to reduce lab ordering too, is we don't want to force someone to wake up as well. Uh, so I, I, I love that this idea and, and uh, what they're they're doing. And of course, there's a practical concept of trying to get labs in timely fashion for us as well with length of stay as well. So I, 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 that's that's kind of a call, the you know the dilemma we have. Uh, VJ, do you have some thoughts? Or? Yeah. So again, this is a this is near and dear to me, and it has been difficult. I've tried to change this at two institutions <laughs> once in my residency and chief year, and also yep. here um, at Ohio State. There are a lot of barriers, but I never understood why we draw blood in the morning other than for the physician and the team. This it's, is something that is historical in, institutional inertia. It's the way we've always done it. And it it I never could understand. You know, I wouldn't mind having my data come in at 10 a, 10 a.m., 11 a.m., noon. I would still be able to act and um, you could still get a lot of information from your physical and your history um, in and of itself. Uh, this is a single center study. It was 
It was done in the UK, or excuse me, in the University of Kentucky. And they just delayed their lab drawing by about, what, two and a half hours, three hours? Yeah. Okay. Um, and the best part was the pie graphs. Did this affect the way that the hospital is rounded? No. The answer was no effect in over 75% of them. And how did it require them to change their rounds? Almost 85%. It didn't require any changes. Now, the way I think about this is if it's not affecting our rounding, it's not affecting how we um, set up our day, it should be an easy win for our patients. They should be allowed to sleep. The information comes in a little bit later. You know, I think it's just very difficult from antiquated systems to get this to change, but I'm a huge proponent that it should change. My hope is that there's going to be other research coming from other institutions with similar findings as well. Yep, and then hopefully we can stop checking their vitals at 4 in the morning too uh, if they're stable and, and you know, our patients will be resting and recovering in the hospital um, instead of uh, being harassed by their healthcare team. Um so, you know, I think uh, I had the chance to talk to the author on this one last night, and I think one of the things that really helped them pull this off is they just did it on one unit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they had a, a – a, they took one unit, and then they moved the, the phlebotomy times back. Um, so they were probably still getting the early morning vitals, uh, and uh, they didn't have to worry about restaffing phlebotomy for the entire hospital uh, or restaffing the lab for the entire hospital to account for a massive change in in practice. Um, so I think that's part of why they were able to be successful with this. But because uh, you know it, it, there are definitely institutional barriers to pulling this off, but uh, pretty cool. Love the poster. Love the idea. Oh, so this is this is my poster actually. I know Vijay's not going to like the level of text, but <laughs> so, yeah, so so anyway, so I'll I'll talk a little bit about yeah. it, I guess. So sorry to do some self promotion. This is a poster I, that I did uh, with a resident at my never say sorry for self promotion at <laughs> <laughs> my former position. Um, so what, what, the title is Transitions of Care: Assessing Satisfaction of Discharge Communication Between Inpatient and Outpatient Providers. Basically, what we're looking at is how do primary care physicians and inpatient providers so hospitalists feel about the state of communication between the two more during the stay and, and more so after the uh, somebody's inpatient stay as well and then um, um uh, and in particular what were there certain kinds of cases where each thought a certain kind of communication was best you know so for the standard of care i think at this point is you should, uh, the Primary care physician should at least get a discharge summary in a timely period. Um, and, but, of course, sometimes we also call the primary care provider or um, or send electronic notes to them if, if we can. Like we just easy through through um, our EMR system and many ones if you have a shared system. This was looking at a large academic um, – what we limited to one large academic like health system. And uh, which shared EMR. It's okay, it's okay to say you were at Wisconsin. Yeah, I was at University of Wisconsin. Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> well, just anyway. So, um, and which had a shared EMR system between inpatient and outpatient, which is kind of critical in making this work. Yeah. Um, but but anyway, so so and we surveyed uh, uh, our primary care uh, pr- uh, practitioners, so family practice, uh, pediatrics, um, general medicine, and also our pediatric and adult hospitalists. And we found that overall, people were pretty happy with the state of communication, but felt like there could be improvements. Um, uh, so about, I think about the majority, 52% were satisfied or very satisfied with state of communication, but then 48% were either neutral or a minority of that 48%, like more, maybe more like, you know, 15% or so was dissatisfied, actually. So I, we, we thought that that was, you know, 
somewhat encouraging that that almost everybody, very few were dissatisfied, but of course there were opportunities for improvement as well. Um, and going down to, you know, in terms of why people didn't think it more, I think it's pretty obvious that time is the biggest factor, you know, for, for both both groups. Uh, and uh, But I think making it easier um, and also having connections is a way to kind of mitigate that to some degree. Um, you know, so, so having easy ways to, to access people and not making, making it easy to call someone's office, these kinds of things. In terms of looking at in particular cases, and, and uh, I'm so no VGA is hating the small print. This was our study. I think didn't lend itself well to the posters. I'll say, but because I think we had, we had a lot to say. Um, but uh, but anyway, um, what we found is that both inpatient and outpatient docs uh, agree that for all comers, a discharge summary alone is probably adequate. Now, if it was a more complicated case, there, um, and I guess you'll see a lot of variability in terms of even with, even within each group of how people thought. Like, and when you went to special cases, you know, for example, like a new patient to a primary care provider, um, there was a very wide split. But most primary care docs would agree that they would appreciate a little more communication than discharge summary for a lot for most of these patients. But having said that, a lot of primary care docs in the comments said, like, we don't have time for this. <laughs> well, anyway, um, so going through the special cases, which included, you know, new patients, complicated patients with multiple admissions, people with new complicated diagnoses, people with changes in goals of care. Um, most primary care doctors asked for, like, felt like for a lot of cases, getting a, a quick phone call or getting a quick, like, in-basket note or something through EMR would, would be helpful in terms of letting them know what they really need to know about the person. Um, now, having said that, I think everybody, uh, I think the majority of people who responded to the study also kind of brought up the limitations of time um, and also, you know, physician burnout with the, the amount of, of documentation you are in right. and billing we already have to do, which is the caveat I'll say is, um, like, I, so I think whenever, I, I, I think that we, had, we need to kind of trust providers that to, to know when more is needed, um, you know, with, with all of some feedback about what, what people would, would like to know. Um, and also, um, um, uh, it, it, we need to make the system work with us, make this easy. Um, if we're going to try to talk more. So, so anyway, you know, I, I think the take home for me is just sort of something that's, that's proven itself to be true, uh, throughout, throughout my career, which is if something's important, you should talk directly to the person about it. And, yeah. um, you know, and, and, and that's been true all the way through. So when you've got a patient that you're worried about, when you've got, uh, an area of concern, when you've got somebody that's complex, uh, reaching out and directly communicating that, um, is, is the way to go for, for those, uh, complex situations to make sure our patients don't fall through the cracks. And this communication can be performed electronically or via phone call, especially as these PCPs are, are very busy because a couple of times in my own history, I've tried to call because that's how I was trained. Um, and some of the PCPs just requested that I just put it in the in-basket, provide it a nice, clean note that they can follow up on because they, they review those at the end of the day and in the morning. My dream is that eventually, you know, you'd be able to communicate through any EMR system to the primary care doctor or, you know, some electronically easily in some secure fashion. You know, that's my dream. And then that, that would make it so much easier for us to talk to some primary care doctor in Urbana, Ohio, or what have you, you know, but... I think we'll get there eventually. Where things are already things are a lot better off than they were, I think, a few years ago in terms of communication and EMR accessibility. So, you know, Doximity has really tried. When you made that comment, it made me think of this. Doximity's really tried to build that space. Um, you know, uh, the the vast majority of U.S. physicians are are uh, are now on Doximity uh, for some complex reasons. Um, and, and, but they, they've created, uh, HIPAA compliant platforms and you can, you can like fax from in there and, 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 uh, there's ways to get in touch with people directly and, and it's, you know, uh, 
for whatever issues I have with Doximity, it certainly is a it's a good platform for communication. But again, it's not universal, so the doc you want to get hold of isn't always in there, or you know, uh, or what have you. So. But uh, but certainly, I think you know, uh, in this new world of, of uh, electronic communication and, and access, um, <clears throat> we're going to have to see uh, ways for that communication to happen, uh, no matter what health system or hospital a patient's in. And I'll just uh, give a quick thanks out to Melissa McDonald, who's a resident who uh, I worked with on this project, and did a wonderful job of seeing it through. So, excellent. Yeah. So I would uh, transition at that point real quickly to just a, a study out of UT Southwestern. Um, and it's UT Southwestern out of Dallas, Texas. It's a, Their title was Improvement in 24-Hour Discharge Summary Completion Rate Does Not Correlate with Reduced Readmissions. This was by Thomas et al. Um, and this poster, I thought, was a good transition uh, from Dr. Nolan's poster here because, you know, we all there's been a pu- there's been a push to get those discharge summaries done within 24 hours of right. a patient's discharge. Um, and there's been some recent publishments as well that says that if you take more than 72 hours to get that discharge done, there's a greater than 10 percent increase that this person is going to be readmitted within 30 days. Wow. So that's kind of the background of why the every, most of these institutions is are- that because people put off doing the discharge summaries on really complex admissions. Most important documentation is the discharge summary, right? That is your handoff. Those are the patients you need it the most, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. yeah, and yeah. I don't, I don't, yeah, and I yeah. don't say that to disagree. I just, yeah. I'm, I'm looking at is it really the delay in the discharge summary that increases the risk of 30 day readmission? I don't think so. There's a correlation there, but Correct. my guess is there's different reasons for that delay in patients that are getting readmitted within 30 days. So um, their methodology was that they they actually um, had an experimental group, their hospitalist group, um, and the way that they performed it is once a patient was discharged, if they didn't get the discharge summary completed in less than 24 hours, they would actually have their transition nurse call them and say, hey, this discharge summary needs to be completed within 24 hours. And that was compared to the teaching group, which got no reminders at all. Um, and their results were that there was just a significance in terms of the experimental group. Um, they actually completed their discharge summaries within 24 hours, about 90% of them versus the teaching group. It was only about 82%. The part that I thought was the most interesting was that there was no effect on the 30-day readmissions, no difference in the seven-day readmissions, and no difference in the seven-day return to ED. But just like James was saying, We've all been guilty at times of wanting to make sure our discharge summary for those complicated patients is appropriate and perfect, and and we might be putting that off a little bit longer than we need to. I think even if they didn't see uh, a change in readmission rate in this study, and of course that, that, that maybe it's, it's a little surprising that that they they found that because it, it wasn't found in the past. I think that there are other reasons to to do it because I think. At once someone leaves the hospital, we're asking the patients to talk to their primary care doctor. And if they don't know what happened to the patient that stay, then their ability to help the patient is, is limited. So I think there are other reasons besides readmissions, obviously, to get get this to our our, our colleagues and to get the information that they need, um, even if this study did not find, find a change in readmissions. So. And then uh, one last one that I really wanted to – we've been UCSF heavy uh, <laughs> during this help podcast – but um, it was by Dr. Patel at all. And uh, avoidable days, another hot topic, trying to identify why these patients are having uh, avoidable days and quantify them as well. So this was done um, at UCSF, and it was a one-month run. That's it, October to November, October 16th through November 16th of 2016. Um, why is this important? Delays, we know, increase length of stay, increase the cost, and we're trying to improve our throughput. 
Um, so single, single site study um, done over 30 days, teaching and non-teaching services um, conducted a smartphone multiple choice survey. And they asked basically three questions. How many patients ex- uh, experienced delay in care leading to an extra day um, in the hospital? Number two, which factors it contributed most to this delay of care? And then just kind of a, a more detailed type question, which, again, was a multiple choice question. Um, only 100 people responded out of 210, which is about 50%, which is expected for an uh, email or smartphone survey. But in that 30-day period, it was quite interesting. There was 110 avoidable days of which, moving back to that space, transitions of care, 57 of those 110 avoidable days were all in the post-acute care type of problems. Yep. And what, they're, what they looked at was patients getting multiple rejections from skilled facilities, LTAGs, yep. nursing homes, lack of sniff beds in the area. So patients are sitting in the hospital because they can't get transitioned out. Or there's a delay on the sniff end. There were about seven of those 110 um, that were just due to delays on the actual receiving end of, their, of the patient. The other portion, which I'm pretty sure all of us experience, 31 or about um, 30% of the delays out of the 110 were due to imaging and procedures. What I found quite interesting was that GI-related procedures, ERCP and an EGD, were the primary cause of 16 of those 31. So about 50% of those procedure-related delays were associated with their GI department. Um, And then their IR department had about seven um, due to biopsies. Um, You know, I think that makes sense for a couple reasons. One is obviously your ERCP is a skilled procedure, so you need you need to have uh, the people available to do the procedure. Uh, There are also tests that require an NPO period. Uh, and uh, I see EGDs on your list. I don't know about colonoscopies, but colonoscopy, you got to prep, prep first. That takes time too. So, um, uh, so I think, I think to some extent that makes sense. You know, I would, you know, every institution has uh, their own uh, areas where they're, they're trying to facilitate uh, throughput and, and care, uh, and, and, you know, it's going to be GI one place and it's, and it's, it's going to be something else in another place. Um, but I think really it comes down to how does the institution realize that there's an avoidable day at stake and facilitate testing for the patient to help, uh, prevent that. Uh, I almost said avoid an avoidable day, but we don't, we don't want to, we don't want to get into wordplay here. I thought this was a, one of the reasons I brought up this poster was I would love to see this across academic centers just to evaluate, do all academic centers kind of see the same requirements do most of them require more ir physicians do we require more gi physicians um to try to get this throughput improved if if that would be the specific imaging procedures post-acute care i know is everywhere you know that's just we feel that and i think you are going to find that it's very institution specific of where the bottlenecks are and even at certain times there's going to be different 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 problems as you know people ebbs and flows of of uh issues with their you know their their operations and staffing yeah, I mean, it's going to be it's a systems efficiency and process improvement um, uh, problem, for my opinion, and not not I would guess it's not subspecialty specific uh, across institutions. Would be nice to know. <laughs> All righty. If anybody else doesn't have any hot topics, uh, we will wrap it up here uh, from the uh, innovations and and what poster? What is it? Research innovations and vignettes. RIV. So our our research innovations and uh, vignettes uh, poster session summary uh, here in uh, sunny Las Vegas. Uh, We're excited for the rest of the conference today. 
Uh, VJ has a poster today, um, and um, and I uh, uh, hope that you all have a chance uh, to uh, enjoy the conference and uh, enjoy the uh, networking and uh, enjoy the sunshine. Views are our own and are not uh, the views of Ohio State. Eric, any closing words? Uh, glad to share our thoughts with everybody, and we'll look forward to talking to you next time.